to Psalm 16. Well, let me just acknowledge uh, the elephant in the room and say that none of us thought we'd be lounging on our couches on Easter morning in our PJs. And for you kids out there whose parents made you dress up, you had a chance. There was a chance that that wasn't gonna have to happen to you. So I'm so sorry that you're still sitting on your couches and all of your all your uncomfortable clothes. But nobody thought six weeks ago that toilet paper was gonna become a national concern for us, right? But what all of this speaks to is a bigger concern for us, which has to do with preservation. How, how are we going to endure this? That's a question that whether you've consciously spoken that or, or it's been something that's just been sort of swirling around inside of you, you're, you're thinking that, we're wondering that, we're hearing people talk about that. How will we endure this? Will we be preserved? Our families, our economy, our churches, our way of life. Now the Psalms are a book of songs and prayers that speak to our concerns about life. But here's the thing, they don't just offer us a vague sense of security or just a faint hope. It's not like when our babies are screaming and we just like give them anything we can to make them stop because we really don't know what's wrong with them. Um, that's not what's happening here with the Psalms. The Psalms show us number one, that God always knows what's going on. God always knows what's wrong. And then secondly, that he's okay. With the, he's okay with us expressing our, our anger and our sadness and our confusion and our longing to him when we don't know what's wrong or what's, what's surfacing inside of us. So this morning, we're gonna read Psalm 16, which is known, by the way, as the resurrection psalm. And we know this because the apostle Peter tells us in the book of Acts that when David wrote this psalm, he was prophetically writing about the resurrection of Jesus. Acts 2 verse 31 tells us, he says, uh, he foresaw and spoke, speaking of David, about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So, so that, that's what Peter's explaining what David was actually doing when he was writing this song. He had this prophetic voice inspired by the Holy Spirit that talked about what was going to happen someday when Jesus, our King, came to live and die and be raised again. And by the way, the resurrection, like really what we just sang, you know, four or five times there, has everything to do with why we have any hope of being preserved through the crisis that we're going to, that we're going through right now, the crisis of COVID-19. Um, Cyprian, who was this bishop of Carthage in AD 251, he made this comment during the plague that killed 5,000 people a day in the city of Rome. This is what he said in that particular cultural moment and crisis that they were experiencing. He said, we are learning not to fear death. That was his comment. And so Psalm 16, it, it reads a little like David learning not to fear death. Now, one of the things I like, maybe the only thing I like, I don't know about Facebook. Um, I, I, like the little, I like the little thing that happens when you click on it, you log on first thing in the morning and it shows your Facebook memories, right? And it kind of reminds you of what was going on a year ago, something you posted and it kind of brings to mind, it's, it's, it springs up something that you had forgotten about. In Psalm 16, it's almost like that, if I can say that uh, without being blasphemous. It's almost like David logging onto Facebook and seeing one of his memories pop up from a year ago, reminding him that present circumstances need to be seen in light of God's faithfulness 
uh, past faithfulness and future promises. And that's what we're going to see today. Matthew Henry, he was this minister from the 1600s and he wrote all these commentaries. This is how he describes Psalm 16, what we're getting ready to read. He says, this Psalm has something of David in it, but he says much more of Christ because it speaks so plainly of Christ and his resurrection, who is the true treasure hidden in the field of the old Testament. So right from the beginning here, what we see as we dive into Psalm 16, we see David beginning this Psalm by praying to God, by just offering a short prayer to God. And he asks God to preserve him. If you look in verse one, David says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And then he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all of my delight. So one of the things we're gonna understand from David here and what he's driving at just in these three verses and through the rest of the song is that self-preservation can't preserve us. Self-preservation can't preserve you. And the word preserve here means, it actually means to keep or support or to guard or defend. Now, if you were with us last week in Psalm 23, you learned that David was not incapable. He was not an incapable man. He was a legendary warrior. He was a beloved king. God even described David as a man after his own heart. And yet David, right here at the beginning of this Psalm, he still pleads with God to keep him, to support him, to guard him, to defend him. And brother, do we feel that right now, right? What David is pointing out here is that there's never a time when self-preservation has any power to actually preserve you. In fact, Jesus instructs his disciples in the gospel of John. This is what he says to them. He says to them that they need to abide in him. They need to remain steadfast in his love. Why? Because he says, without me, you can do nothing. And so David says it like this here. He says, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you. That's how David is, is phrasing his place before the Lord and in this world. And like, Dave, like us, David actually lived in a pagan culture where there were many foreign gods that his people were tempted to sacrifice to in place of the true and living God. And really there's little difference today other than our gods are more uh, sophisticated. Um, Man, we just bow down to them differently than they did back then. We, we seek Amazon first, right? We, we put our love in, into Netflix. We, we bow before the altar of social media. We elevate relationships to deity status. Our bank accounts become our prayers, right? But in reality, we have plenty of small G gods or, or lesser lords, as I'm going to phrase it, that we're counting on to get us through the crisis we're in. And if you're not sure about what those things are, man, just do an inventory. Do an inventory on what you sacrifice your time, talent, and money for. Because the dilemma illuminated for us here is that we depend on the gods that we sacrifice to. And then we expect them to sacrifice for us what we've sacrificed for them, but we learn that they don't, that they never do. They possess no power to preserve us, to guard us, to keep us, like David is praying to the Lord for. Now, I mean, I I don't know about you, but when, when I'm sick or when I'm suffering in any significant way, those things, 
that I've sacrificed time and love and money and attention to, man, they just fade into the background because I need something that can actually help me, that can actually alleviate the pain, that can give me some hope that I'm on the mend, that I'm becoming healed. And yet, we sacrifice so much for these lesser lords that in the end have no power to preserve us. So the question for us this morning is what would some of those lesser lords be in your life that you make sacrifices to in order to preserve and keep you? Think about that. Pray that God would reveal what some of those things might be. David says, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And David doesn't mean that there are no other good things in his life. He doesn't mean that people don't extend acts of goodness to him for his benefit. He's not saying, hey, your friends are no good, your spouse is no good, your kids are no good in the sense that they lack the ability to do good things for you in any tangible way. He's saying that they're not the source of good. See, David's trying to drive it with the source of our good, who it is and where it comes from. So if you spent a lifetime accumulating lesser lords to sacrifice to, you will in turn not receive the lasting good for them that you ultimately long for, right? I mean, you can devote all of your time and money and talent and attention to me, for example, okay? Let's just use me as an example. But if you ever come to me in need of emergency surgery, you'll find I was the wrong guy to be nice to all that time, right? Why? Because I can't deliver what you need. Psalm 127 verse one reminds us that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Again, this, the psalmist is trying to bring us back to the fact that we have to trust in God to provide the needs that only God can provide. And, and what he's calling us to trust and believe him for. James 1.17 reminds us, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation, no shadow due to change. So we want somebody that's not only gonna give us exactly what we need, but is not gonna change his mind based on his feelings towards us or based on how we're adding up to him within that particular moment. And that's what we get from James in terms of how God gives us his gifts and the heart behind his gift giving as the giver of our life. So the good things we receive from the Lord, that's what they are. They're gifts which are meant to point us back to the giver so that they don't become gods. What's so interesting is that you, you don't thank the gift when you receive a gift, right? Like you don't exalt the gift really. Uh, Melissa reminded me last night when we were, we were on this cruise a few months ago, which feels like years ago now, um, but we would wake up every morning and we'd go to the back of this, this crazy ship and um, we would kind of get to see the, the sunrise come up as we were pulling into wherever our destination was. And every time 
um, man, we were just, it was just stunning. You know, the colors and seeing the sun come up over the, you know, over the, the, the rim of the ocean. And um, we, we would just comment to each other and we would just behold it. And we would just say, look at what God created. Like, how is this possible that we see something that this, that, that this is, that's this mind-numbingly beautiful? Um, but here's the thing, like, man, we, we, we didn't worship the sun, we wouldn't like break down the sun, like Melissa didn't grab her science book and say, hey, let me teach you a few things about the sun right now because I find this to be really interesting. That probably wouldn't surprise me if she did that, but she didn't do that, all right? Um, man, we just talked about the beauty to behold in the moment. And David says, by the way, we can trust the Lord over these lesser lords in our lives. And we can trust the Lord with confidence because all of his delight is on us. Maybe that verse kind of surprised you that all of his delight uh, is on us. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all of my delight. We can trust the God we take refuge in because he rejoices over us. In the book of Zephaniah, Zephaniah is this Old Testament prophet, and this is what he said, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Man, it is so hard, me included, for many of us to break the stereotype that we have of God as sort of this mad dad right? Who is just constantly aggravated and unhappy with us. What David is saying is that if the Lord is your Lord, it means he sings over you at the top of his lungs. And what does that do to you when you hear that? What does that do to you when you think about what God thinks about you? I mean, this should just bolster our trust in the Lord, knowing that in spite of how intimately he knows you, and by the way, it's, it's more intimate than anybody else can possibly know about you. In spite of that, he remains this joyfully invested in you. How is that possible? It's kind of like when someone goes overboard in some ways. I think this is how we, we, we kind of, we, we deal with this understanding of God delighting us. It's kind of like when someone goes overboard complimenting you. It doesn't happen much to me, but when somebody goes overboard and, and they say all these crazy nice things and you start to feel ashamed because you know, hey man, I just, I ain't that great. You know, you, you know that and there's this shame that rises up in you. But what we see here is that God delights over us, not because we're that great, but because his love and his mercy and his grace is part of his greatness. It overflows out of the accumulation of who he is. And by the way, this doesn't give you a huge head either, but it gives you a humble heart because you know you've done nothing to deserve this kind of praise. Because again, like David says, apart from him, you possess no good. One of the things I love about my wife is that she's always talking about how praiseworthy something is. I mean, she just, she's very descriptive and she's just is always reminding me, look how beautiful this is. And can you believe that we get to experience this right now? Um, 
And so when we think about something being praiseworthy, we think of something that we, we can't stop talking about, we can't stop raving about, we can't stop praising, we can't say enough good things about. And then we imagine the creator of the universe doing that with us, his creation, and it just completely levels like everything that I've ever thought about God. But this is the God who knows us. And when we are considered his children, he doesn't just tolerate us, but he loves us. He delights in us. You know, and I know we struggle with this because we are people, man, all of us who have struggled with relationships. I've struggled in relationships. You've struggled in relationships. Man, we're so afraid of rejection. Why? Because we've all experienced it. We're afraid of putting ourselves out there. We're afraid of being vulnerable. Man, we see it all over the the place, right? We see it in dating apps. We see it in our friendships. We see it in our marriages. So to know that in Christ, God will never reject us, but that we are delighted over is incredibly good and hopeful news for us this morning. In fact, you know, just on a, on a personal level, the, the best friends I've ever had over the years are with people who, who I know love me, who I know accept me, who, know are, who I know are, are thrilled to be my friend and actually want to be around me as much as that's hard for me to believe sometimes. David says we are his excellent ones, which is why he goes before the Lord. And he says, preserve me. So what we've learned though is that self-preservation, well, that can't preserve us. So then we must choose the Lord, David says next, to be our portion. Let's pick up in verse four. It says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. So we'll stop there. When we run after small G gods, when we make sacrifices to these lesser lords, the result, David says, is a multiplication of sorrows. David is saying that our expectations will continually be dashed. And that's probably putting it lightly. And the worst part about that is that not that our expectations are gonna be dashed or even that we will experience a multiplication of sorrows. There's a bigger thing happening behind this, which is that God is jealous for his glory. When we go to Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, this was Jesus's instruction to the children of Israel. He said, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Maybe you've never read that before. Maybe you thought, man, I, you know, I, I think of all these descriptive terms about God uh, throughout the Bible. I've never read that one of them, one of his nicknames that he just busts out with occasionally is jealous. But by jealous, it means he is insistent that his people give him all the glory that is due him, which by the way is all of it, is all of the glory. And unlike us, this doesn't make God an egotistical maniac either, right? And what this means is that, follow me here, that if our greatest good 
is to worship the God who created us, then you better believe that God is so jealous of who we worship since our greatest good is to see and savor God as most beautiful and most glorious. Does that, does that make sense for us when we think about it in those terms? This is why we don't want to find God merely useful, but beautiful. Because we want more of something that's beautiful. Here's the thing about usefulness. Usefulness turns God into Aldi's or Amazon right? We only want it for what it can give us. But beauty, if God is beautiful, it means that it's something we want and desire in order to behold it, to praise it, to boast to others about it, right? Like nobody is, nobody is inspired right now if I were to, to start telling you about like the new charger I got for my iPhone, right? No, nobody's, nobody's inspired to hear about that. But everyone, okay, some people, are inspired to see the photo of the Swiss Alps I took with my iPhone. That's why it's not called useful gram, right? So what I'm driving at here is because God is beautiful, that is what draws us to, not just because he can give us the things that we want. That's why David describes the inheritance he has as beautiful. He doesn't just say it's this inheritance of riches I get someday. So come on, God, why don't you just tell me when I can start cashing those checks? He says, no, no, the inheritance I have is beautiful. We read about this in Ephesians 1, verse 11. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. You see how it wraps around that this inheritance we receive is actually not just a bunch of things, but it's the thing, it's Christ. And it's all for the praise of his glory and not just merely what we can get from him in ways that we think will improve our life. Because look, what else would move you to praise and adoration in verses seven and eight, like, like David did. Do you ever ask yourself that? What moves you? What are the things that move you to praise with your mouth and, and have a, a, a sense of adoration within your heart? Because this is what happens to David. He blesses the Lord because the Lord is also where he finds wisdom. And it's that wisdom that David is blessing the Lord for that leads him back to the Lord in all that he does. It's like this amazingly beautiful circle. And when something goes wrong, by the way, it's not gonna unravel him. It's not going to shake him. He has a confidence in who he worships, who moves him to praise, who preserves him, which is why David, in his wisdom, chooses the Lord to be his portion because David had some portions around him that he could dig his fingers into. And what he had learned in his wisdom was that to find that well of joy and happiness and preservation in his life, it had to be God as his portion. David is saying, because I have chosen the Lord to be my everything, all the anythings in life can be faced because I'm not looking for some other Lord to preserve me through it. And interestingly, there's never a moment when David doesn't anticipate the potential of bad things happening. None of the Psalms do this, but somehow, and he's not a fatalist either. Well, how, how is that? Well, because by choosing God to be Lord over his life, he knows there is no sorrow that can ultimately undo him. 
So man, we just have to ask ourselves, is that us this morning? Is that you this morning? Are you a self-preservationist? Do you have your hand in the jars of all of these other portions that you are looking to give you the wisdom in life that you need? The problem is that self-preservation can't preserve us. The problem is that we must choose the Lord as our portion because he is the one that preserves us in life and in death through Christ, like what we just sang. Let's read verses nine through 11. And it says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices and my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So there's that word, therefore. In other words, it's saying because all of this is true, because everything I've written up to this point is true. David said his heart is glad and his whole being rejoices and his flesh dwells secure. Do you ever ask what gives your heart gladness? Do you ever reflect on the things that are giving your heart gladness? Because look, David had a lot of enemies. So that could be something to make his heart not glad. All the enemies David had could have been the occasion for his heart to be sad and worried. And then on the flip side of that, David also had a lot of material blessings as the king of Israel. So that could be something that gave his heart a sense of gladness. But isn't it strange that David doesn't let either of those two things attempt to either stop his gladness or be the supply of it? Instead, here's what the Apostle Peter tells us in the book of Acts about what David was referring to when he talks about gladness and rejoicing and security. We just read a snippet of it in the beginning, but here's kind of the, the, fuller, uh, the fuller text of it in Acts 2, 29 through 32. Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So David knew that the source of his gladness, his rejoicing, his security was never going to be found within himself or anything outside of himself besides Christ. And because of that, David's whole outlook on life is transformed. Right? He's not wasting away in worry. He sees that his actual future is found in the resurrected Christ, who, by the way, is exactly what he's describing here in verse 11. It's Christ who is his path of life. It is Christ who is his fullness of joy. It is Christ who is the source of pleasures forevermore as Christ sits at the right hand of God interceding for us. So Easter 2020 finds us at just such an interesting crossroads for us as the church and as a nation 
And it brings us back in a lot of ways to the essentials of our faith, which is that the hope of the Christian is resurrection. And the reason why that's true is because we have a resurrected Christ. That's what David's driving at here. The God who preserved Christ will be who preserves us. If we have died to our sins and have been raised up to new life in Christ, God will not abandon our souls wherever we find ourselves tomorrow. How desperately do you need to press into this today on Easter Sunday during this pandemic? Because our lives, man, they're resembling something right now. The church's life is resembling something right now that isn't going to be just immediately forgotten when this whole thing has finally been absolved. The question is, what does your life resemble? Does it resemble something that's collapsible or does it resemble something that is firm, something that is solid, something that can't be shaken? Man, I don't know about you, but you know, it just feels like, man, those Amazon boxes, even though they're not coming as quick as they used to, they're just coming like all the time, right? But here's the thing with Amazon boxes is, man, we just, we throw those things away. We throw away our Amazon boxes. Man, we don't use Amazon boxes to eat dinner on in our kitchen, right? We don't use them for our coffee table in the living room. I mean, they have the same shape as those things, but they can't support anything long-term. They're collapsible. They don't endure. They can't really keep us, guard us, protect us, or defend what they're holding. We need something that is solid. We need, we need wood. We need a safe. We need an object that is immovable. We need something that's not just going to collapse whenever anybody brushes by it or something too heavy is sitting on it. Do you see how that represents those things in our life that we have made that aren't able to hold what we want them to hold? And so we see David here saying, God, preserve me. Only you are the one that can keep me from collapsing. And when I do collapse, you are the only one strong enough and safe enough to keep me, to guard me, to defend me, to uphold me. Man, that matters right now. That matters that we have that as a truth in our life. And not just some, you know, not, not, just, not just some theoretical intellectual thing, but actually a truth that is guarding our hearts against despair, against disappointment, against fear and worry and anxiety. So what is Psalm 16? What is it calling us to do? Well, I would say the first thing it's calling us to do is to pray like David prays. Are we going before the Lord with that kind of desperation in these times? Or do we just put our head down and pray that it all just passes but to not experience the kind of preservation that God wants us to know about him for a time such as this. So we pray like David prays, preserve me, O God. We remind ourselves of who needs to be the Lord of our lives. We say, show me the lesser Lords of my life, these collapsible things that I've put all of my hope and faith in that I make so many sacrifices for. So we need to pray like David prays. Secondly, we need to praise like David praises, right? 
Because if we trust that God is our rock and our salvation, our only hope in life and death, then it means that even though we are walking through this valley right now, we know that he is with us. We know that we don't have to fear whatever kind of evil may descend upon us in this. It means that our hearts, instead of shrinking in fear, can explode in praise and in blessing the Lord. We can set the Lord before us because he has us. He's our shepherd. He carries us. So we want to pray like David prays. But man, we want to praise like David praises. And then finally, we want to look to Christ like David looked to Christ. You make known to me the path of life. What this means is that Christ is our wisdom in a crisis like this. It means he is the one that we pursue. Man, I'm not telling you don't listen to the news. I'm not telling you don't, man, explore what's going on um, with how this thing just continues to unfold. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying be educated in these things so that we can love our neighbor well and better. But I'm saying in the midst of all that, who we need to be pursuing for the, the health of our souls is Christ because he is our wisdom. He is the path of life for us. So we pursue him. Wisdom would lead us to pursuing Christ and his promises during a pandemic like we're experiencing right now. David also says, in your presence is fullness of joy. What does that mean for us practically? It means that Christ is the joy that we can have in this crisis. Why? Because what he said about Jesus is true. He's not abandoned us. He will not abandon our souls. So it's not like Jesus is up there looking down at us saying, man, I wonder how all these guys are gonna work out this crisis. He is with us in the mess. And in him, in his presence, there is a fullness of joy, right? Which doesn't mean that everything around us is just going swimmingly. It just means as things continue to progress, as we continue to get bad news, we have a joy in our salvation, which never, never, never was dependent on us. And so we can think in my present and in my future, I have a hope that is sustaining and goes beyond what I experience in this life. And then David says that your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What this tells us is that Christ is our hope in crisis. So Christ is our wisdom in crisis, our joy in crisis, but he's our hope in crisis. Why? Because he's already interceding for us. So when we go before him and pray like David prayed and praise him like David praised him, he brings that to God who hears us. And we know that he's a compassionate God. And he hears us because Jesus says, these are my people. These are my sons and daughters. And so God comes to us, doesn't abandon us, cares for us, carries us, shepherds us, has compassion on us. So let me finish by saying this. For those of you who are prone to, man, just, kind of a self-sufficiency right now. You just feel like you're gonna put your head down. It doesn't matter what's happening around you. You're just gonna get through it. Well, let me just encourage you in this way by praying to God to preserve you. A couple things are gonna happen with that. Um, the first one is that you will have a deeper quality of life. David says the lines, where, where does he say this in, uh, in verse uh, 
Six, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. What he means by that line, the lines, is he means there's a quality of life that I experience when I'm not just putting my head down, but I'm lifting it up to God as my support and as my health. So you will experience a deeper quality of life than what you can do for yourself by putting your head down and hoping that everything just comes together. And secondly, you will have a greater compassion for your neighbor instead of just tunnel visioning yourself and trying to forget everything that's going on around you. Those of you who are prone to forgetfulness and forgetting who God is in this, forgetting that he's your hope in life and death. You can remember as you read Psalm 16 that you have all of God's delight upon you, even in the midst of a pandemic. Like at no point during this pandemic did, did God look behind him and say, all right, angels, you need to cut the music. I'm not gonna be singing over my people during this time. Like the music is not stopping up there. Like the lyrics are not stopping, coming from God's mouth, pouring over us with delight and rejoicing. All of that is not ceasing. So those of you who are forgetful, if you're like me and you forget everything so quickly and easily, remember you have all of God's delight. You are his excellent ones. Those of you who are prone to just this just this kind of paralyzing fear because everything is so unknown. You can read Psalm 16 and you can remember that he's given you an inheritance. And it's not just any inheritance. It's a beautiful inheritance. It's something that's worthy of your praise. It's something that's going to unlock uh, just the, the closedness of your heart right now that just feels like, man, I just feel so tight inside. I just, I just feel like I, I can barely move. I feel like part of me can barely breathe. Sometimes I've heard from some of you, sometimes when I watch these services, Ronnie, I feel like I wanna turn them off because it just moves me to tears. You need to remember that you have a beautiful inheritance, that everything that God saved you for is still waiting for you. It's being prepared for you. None of it has been lost. And you need to trust in something that takes you beyond the confines of the fear of this world. And again, pray like David prays that God would replace that fear with a deeper faithfulness in him. Understanding that he is with you in your fears. And he's not mad about your fears, but he understands your fears. Some of you are prone to battling with legitimate loneliness. There's a legitimate loneliness happening right now for those of you who are working from home and you're single and you have to keep yourself distanced from people right now. We read Psalm 16 and we remember that God didn't abandon Christ. He didn't abandon his son. He doesn't abandon you. He doesn't abandon his adopted sons and his adopted daughters. You can look up, you can redirect your gaze up to God. You can have confidence. You can have fullness of joy, even though physical presence is absent. And you can trust the Lord and depend on the Lord to provide something within this moment that maybe you've never experienced before. Understanding of how deeply he delights in you, how deeply he rejoices over you and how deeply he doesn't leave or forsake you. And then finally, for those of you who feel like you're just kind of falling apart 
right now, what I would encourage you to do is ask why. What, what is this particular pandemic? What is this moment? What is it exposing in you? So let me just say this. It's okay to grieve some of the loss that we're experiencing right now. It's a right thing for God's people to grieve loss. But you have to ask whether those losses are really more like lesser lords of your life. And what's so tricky about saying that is that they're usually good things, right? I mean, we would say church and relationships and ministry and socializing We would say that those are good and right and godly things. Those are blessings from the Lord. But maybe this is the first time you're able to see how deeply you've looked and depended and sacrificed for these things to keep, support, guard, and defend you. And what you're finding out is although they are good things, they are not the source of all good and therefore they can't preserve you. And the proof is that they're not preserving you right now. God is going to use coronavirus to make Christ all the more glorious in your life and in my life. Crisis has never proven to be a bad thing for the church, but it's those moments when we find ourselves back where we belong which is at the foot of the cross. David Pallison, who died last year, he was the president of CCEF. He made this quote. He said this quote, he said, the endurance of faith is one of the spirit's finest fruits. And you only learn to endure when you must live through something hard. So that's what's happening right now is God is teaching us endurance He's teaching us to rethink self-preservation. He's leading us to see the futility of some of these lesser lords that we have established, that we have set on high in our lives. David saw this. He saw the danger of self-preservation because it leads to idol worship and it leads to a multiplication of sorrow, which by the way, is just a heart that is glad in the wrong things because idols will abandon you and they will leave you with nothing to preserve your soul. But the resurrection of Jesus, it leads us to the opposite reality. You know, my friend, um, Michael Crawford, he's, he's come here, he's preached here a couple of times, but he texted me this morning and he said, resurrection has brought you into my life and I'm blessed. And when I look out on all the chairs here and I see all your faces on the seats, that's what I see. I see stories of resurrection because in fact, just like what my friend Michael said, it is resurrection that has brought us together. And so it unites us under this unique hope right now that God will preserve us, that he is a refuge for us, that he is our strength, that he is an ever-present help in times of trouble. Let's press into Christ. The resurrection and the life, our only hope in life and death. Let's press into him together. 
today for the sake of the glory of God and our good. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you preserve us and we thank you that you showed us how much you do that by the resurrection, by sending Christ your son, by giving us a hope in life and death, by giving us a path for life, by giving us fullness of joy, by giving us pleasures forevermore. Thank you for this one hope. And God, may you remind us of it today. May you make it ever more beautiful. May you ex use it to expose those lesser lords in our life that we have set on high, that we've established, that we have made altars for and put on platforms, that we might demolish those lords and look to the Lord today and say, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good. Lord, thank you for this truth that anchors us, that holds us close, that steadies us, that secures us. God, thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ because he is risen and he is risen indeed. And to this we pray in Christ's name, amen.